All right. Okay, you can all say, yay, whoopee, hallelujah. We finally made it to the end of the division of the lands. So we're going to hopefully finish up a couple of chapters tonight. And and again, as I said, I don't want to belittle or belabor these particular passages of Scripture, these chapters. Uh, they're excruciatingly important, especially for the Jewish people and for establishing what is the promised land, the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But there are an awful lot of names that are given and places that, uh, frankly, are, are very tough to, to go back to the Holy Lands today and uh, find them. They're small little towns and cities, but the major things, the land divisions, the rivers, the streams, uh, those things are all still there. And so they are important uh, in that this is the land that the Jewish people should be occupying. And so tonight... I will take a final look at this division as all the tribes finally get into land. But there's some things in this passage, especially here in chapter 18, that we can focus in on. A couple of things in, in chapter 19 as well that are important to us living uh, in the New Testament age of grace in that day and time where we are no longer under the law but under grace. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Because, you know, I, I don't do well under grace. I can't imagine how I do under the law. Uh, think about that for a second. You know, you think think about your life in Christ and the fact that we have been freely redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and then think about what it meant to have to worry about which dove you offered on what day with what stick and how many times you waved the wave of the, the wave offering or whether you, you know, actually made it to uh, your home at sundown every single Friday night and you weren't carrying something uh, that weighed more than two sparrows. Think about those things for a couple of minutes. How many times on a, on a Friday night are you someplace where you're carrying something that weighs more than two sparrows? Uh, and you're, you're less than, you're less than about 300 yards from your home. That would be the total distance that you could be as a Jew from your own home carrying that type of a, of a weight. Uh, we'd all be perishing. We'd need to go to the temple and get, you know, cleaned up from that. Think of having to use the mikvah. Uh, every single time you defiled yourself by touching something unclean. For me, uh, bacon is unclean, so I'd be ceremonial unclean all the time. I'd be in trouble. Be in trouble. Little bacon grease, little bacon. I like bacon on my bacon, as a matter of fact. So, uh, just, just pile that. Ba- I'd make bacon tacos if I could, you know. So, uh, we're in the age of grace. But for the Jewish people, this was a very, very important time because they were now entering into the land that they were supposed to to inherit uh, because the Lord had told them to go seize it some 40 years earlier. Because of that disobedience, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. The Lord was with them in the wilderness, and now we're going to find them establish themselves in the promised land where they are supposed to be and begin to live the life that obedience brings. And that that is certainly a lesson that we'll see tonight. So obedience brings blessing, and if you want what God wants for you, then you need to do what God has for you. If you want what God has for you, then you need to do what he wants from you. So it's really important to get that going forward in these last couple of chapters. And so chapters 18 and 19 here in the book of Joshua tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your amazing love for us. God, that you... Looking down and seeing our need, didn't shy away from it. You, you didn't all of a sudden think, wow, I made a mistake in creating them. Uh, you, you've given us the promised land in Jesus. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. 
pray as we study your word tonight that you would speak to us, bless us, anoint us. Uh, God, we just ask that you would take care of the wounds that we've carried in tonight, the burdens that perhaps have weighted us down this day. God, would you lift them? Would you heal those who are sick? God, would you take care of those who are in need, Lord? Someone's come tonight and they're, they're bearing a need. God, we pray that you, by your grace and your amazing mercy, Lord, would you just heap upon them all that they have need of in those great riches that we possess in Christ Jesus. And we thank you. We praise you and God's people all said, Amen. First, here at Shiloh, and Joshua begins to exhort the remaining tribes to go possess their land. Now, it's been estimated that this whole land division thing probably took some months. Uh, It wasn't instantaneous, and you would kind of think, you know, hey, we're going to split up some land, and people are going to go, you know, set up their their homes there, uh, that it wouldn't be that tough to do. But it actually was very difficult to do. And we're going to look at something here in the first part of, of chapter 18, Uh, That's extremely important. And so now verse 1. And now the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh. And so the the camp, in essence, the main camp, has moved from Gilgal to Shiloh. And all of the children of Israel are going there. So it's not just these remaining seven, but all of them. They are going to meet and they're going to partake in this final division of the land altogether. Because there, there needs to be a sense of fairness in the body of Christ. We see it in Christ Jesus in the parable of the minus, all of us get the same salvation. Amen? Uh, there isn't, you know, you're saved or you're not saved. And so you're either in or out. And so this is another picture of our salvation in Christ in that all of the children of Israel are now going to go to Shiloh. And there they will set up the tabernacle of meeting. And so it's important that you see that because that is where they met with God. And so this is a picture of us in our New Testament times because we are all going to be uh, one day in the same heaven. Amen? Uh, we're not going to be do- divided up. There isn't going to be like, you know, the the other side of the tracks in heaven. There's not going to be the, the, the barrio with the, with the homeboys on one side and, you know, and the rest of some other guys over here. They're, they're, you're not going to have that. We're going to all be there together in heaven. Amen? We're going to be worshiping the Lord together in heaven. And so this is a picture, if you will, of, of that which we have in Christ Jesus. And so they say, this, this passage tells us they set up the tabernacle of meeting. And now you need to take a, a good mental picture. We've covered that. If you get the study that we did in Exodus, you'll see it uh, with technicolor. But when you, when you think of the, the tent of the tabernacle of meeting, we kind of think of this, you know, this kind of, you know, weird thing that they did in the desert. But virtually every part of it had purpose. Every part of it had meaning. All the way down to the types of stakes that were used, the acacia wood that was used, the boards that were on the side of the tent of meeting, the, the beaver hair covering that was over the top of it, the, the multicolored gate that was in the front of it indicating that all could come in. It didn't matter who you were. If you came into the righteousness of Christ, that gigantic linen fence that encircled the whole compound, so this big, white, tall wood fence, probably in, uh, that was made out of linen, likely at least 8 to 10 feet tall, bordered the whole thing. So the court of the Gentiles, the court of praise, the court of sacrifice, all those things divided up by this white thing that would shine in the desert, the holiness of God. And then as you got inside, all of the same things that existed in the temple were there. You had the offering, the burnt offering sacrifice, the big bronze 
uh, urn that was there, the bronze laver that held the water where they would wash their hands from the sacrifice so that they would not be unclean. And then as you went into the tent, you had the same things that you had in the the tabernacle in Jerusalem. You'd have the table of showbread, the altar of incense, and and the the giant uh, lampstand that would be inside of the holy place. And then the Ark of the Covenant stood behind that. And so in the Ark of the Covenant, those three things, you you had the law, you had Aaron's rod that budded, and a jar of manna. So they were inside of it. So they represented the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit, all inside of the Ark of the Covenant. And there God dwelt between the two cherubim facing each other. His presence literally dwelt with them, and it appeared to them every moment of every 24-hour period of time during the day, a cloud that shielded them, and at night, a pillar of fire. And so that's what they set up. They didn't just set up some little tent over there where everybody said, you know, there's kind of like a little cardboard thing like we have here in Running Springs every single Saturday, garage sale this way. It wasn't like that. It was like the fire of God at night glowed at night and the cloud of God hung over the camp of Israel. And then surrounding the tent of the meeting were all of the encampments of the Israelites. And so all 12 tribes four facing each direction, or excuse me, three facing each direction, divided up to the four quadrants, north, south, east, and west. And so this is a spectacular site that was at Shiloh. And so when they went to divide up the rest of the time, what they would actually do is they're now going to take this temporary place of meeting, and it's actually going to become the temple in Jerusalem. So as they divide up all of their lands and they go to them, they are no longer encamped around the tabernacle. The tabernacle is going to need to symbolically dwell with each of them in every one of their lands. And there will be a temple that will be set up in Jerusalem. And so it's important to get this picture because it isn't this kind of this little flaky thing to where you kind of, well, we'll just go do this and whatever happens, happens. There is meaning to each of it. And it says there at the end of verse 1, and the land was subdued before them. In other words, they've come and they've fought all the wars. Again, picture of grace, amen? There's a spiritual battle. The battle has been won by our Lord Jesus Christ, amen? So the battle's been won. We are now subdued in that sense that the enemy is a defeated enemy. He still has some things that he does in our lives, but he cannot take those whom are God's. Amen? So the land is subdued. The enemy is subdued. He's still in the land, much like the enemy is still in the world, and we are victors in Christ, but he still gives us a little bit of of trouble. So the land is subdued. The people have the land. They possess the land. They're in the land, and they're seeking the blessings of the land. But there remained among the children of Israel seven tribes which had not yet received their inheritance. And then Joshua said to the children of Israel, and notice this, How long will you neglect to go and possess the land which the Lord of your fathers has given you? This is a picture of Christians who refuse to be who they are in Christ Jesus. We have it all. Read the book of Ephesians, the tremendous riches that you have in Christ Jesus. We've been adopted as the beloved. Think of that for a second, that God would want you in his literal family. That we are brothers and sisters 
that we are literally the beloved of God. Think about some of those things that we have in Christ Jesus. When you think about those things, can you imagine any reason why any right-thinking Christian would not want to possess all that God has for us? It really is kind of contrary to our thinking spiritually, amen? The same was true for the children of Israel and the land. The land represented God's promises to them. The land was that representation that God was for them and who could be against them, amen? The book of Romans spelled out before you basically in the Old Testament. And so here they are. You've got these tribes that are kind of spiritually lazy, And can I say to you, there's a lot of Christians who are spiritually lazy. They kind of wander around this earth not possessing what God has asked you to possess, not being what God wants you to be. And and sometimes when we look at the church, we have to say, I wonder what other people think when they're looking at it. Can you imagine the Canaanites who have just gotten whooped by the Jews? Amen? Wherever the Jews went, for the one exception, the little town of Ai, where God taught them a lesson, amen? and then gave them a fresh start after that. Other than the land, this inferior force has gone throughout the land of Canaan and has subdued the entire promised land. And God is saying, go possess it. It's yours. The picture is this. Look who you are in Christ. Go possess it. It's yours. Be who you're supposed to be in Christ. Go be sinless. Go live your life in a way that's well-pleasing to the Lord. Go offer your life a living sacrifice for God. It's your reasonable service. You see, we have the same picture as who we are in Christ. They had it in a literal rendering of the division of the land. And so God is now present with them, and Joshua is kind of chiding them a little bit. Why would you not want to possess your land? What would keep you there? Why, Why is it that Joshua would need to even prod them? Think about it for a second. Could it be that they were afraid still? Could it be that fear had crept into their lives? Could it be that that fear was absolutely a lack of faith? Because they would have to go possess the land by faith, amen? Because they had failed to kill some of the people that God had told them to kill. Remember that? There were still enemies in the land. There were still giants in Gath. There were still Gibeonites. Remember them? They let them go. There were still some Hittites in the north. You see, there were still enemies. But what God had said is, I've defeated your enemies. Go possess the land. For you and I, the way this comes out in our lives is, there's still enemies in the land. Go possess the land. Go be who God's called you to be. Read those fear not passages in the book of Isaiah. Fear not, for I, the Lord, am your God. Amen? And so he's saying to him, look, you're kind of neglecting this. And so he says, he uses the word neglect. How long will you neglect to go and possess the land? And frankly, whatever the exact reason actually was, I think the bottom line was they were neglecting, much like we can neglect that great salvation that we have. They were saying, look, well, we're not really sure on this, so we're going to stay right here in this big encampment where we're all gathered together. If we stay here together, we're kind of a formidable force. 
Do you see the picture of how the church can get stuck and kind of hanging out together with ourselves? We, we kind of become a, a big Christian social club. And again, nothing wrong with fellowship. We're supposed to do that. But when the church becomes so locked up within its own four walls, and I'm speaking figuratively, when we stay within ourselves and we do not go out and possess what God has called us to possess, when we won't go out and do the simple things that we should do, like go vote, like last night, praise the Lord, when you go do the right thing, you're taking that out into the world that needs to see who God is. And I think that the children of Israel were pretty happy staying together. They could go fight battles together. They would have each other's company. There was more food to be had. In essence, what I think the problem was, was they were neglecting to go take what God had given them because it was going to be hard. It was going to be difficult. Remember, the lands that they're taking were going to need to be worked on. The cities had been destroyed. The enemies vanquished. The farm fields left fallow. There's a lot of junk going on in those areas that they were going to have to actually go work at it. Your Bible says that you were to work out your salvation with fear and trembling before the Lord. That your God is a jealous God. They were to actually test and see whether you're of the faith or not. We're supposed to go put these things into practice, in other words. Actually see that they work. And the way you do that is not by sitting around being comfortable. The way that you do that is go and possess what God has for you. And so he's saying, look, guys, you need to go out. That's why Hebrews 2 for us says, therefore, in verse 1, we must give a more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away. You see, what we can end up doing now is if we won't go possess what God has for us, then what we eventually start to do is very slowly... Sometimes, excuse me, unperceivably, we, we kind of end up wandering where we're not supposed to go. We get a little too much idle time. We end up in places that we shouldn't be. And it goes on there to say in Hebrews 2, For the word spoken through the angels proves steadfast, and every transgression and every disobedience received its just reward. God has always done what God said he would do. He blesses the obedient, and he allows the disobedient to suffer their consequences. He's always done that. God's been faithful to do that throughout time. How should we escape? It says in verse 3, if we neglect so great a salvation. You, you see, we can neglect what God has for us as well. And you guys know around here, when we neglect stuff, man, the pine needles get four feet deep, don't they? You know, you neglect your lawn, what happens? Around here, the gophers take over, the weeds take over, the acorns take Don't you hate that, the acorns in your lawn? I know not everybody has lawn here. We have, I hate acorns. I go out there and it seems like every, every fall I'm like on my hands and knees going across my lawn with a screwdriver popping acorns out of the grass. It's like, that's another one. I can't neglect to do that. If I neglect to do that, then I'm going to have oak trees in the middle of my green lawn. That's what's going to happen. It's not going to look like a lawn anymore. It's going to look like a little mini short forest. And the same is true in our lives, isn't it? Any of you ever gone down and you bought that the cheap mulch at Home Depot and it says weed-free 
and you find out that they're liars. It's not only not weed-free, it's got mushrooms and, you know, who knows what's in it. And you throw it on your nice lawn and you're, you're going to, you know, make it grow. The only thing that grows is, it's a 40-pound mushroom. You see, if we neglect the things of God, some ugly things we don't want begin to grow. Amen? All of a sudden you're wondering, where did that come from? A lot of times it's just from passive neglect. It's not going and possessing what God wants for you. Did you know that God wants you to be walking in the Spirit tonight? So that you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's what your Bible says. Do you know that tonight God wants you to be gentle and kind and peaceable and merciful and tender and caring and loving? You see, you have to possess that kind of stuff because it doesn't come naturally. It's easy to neglect those things. They're things of the Spirit that we have to work at as Christians. Amen? Anybody in here naturally patient? I hate you if you are. Oh, how does anybody naturally have patience? You have to work at being, I have to work at being patient. Yeah, I'm naturally not patient. If you look up impatient, my name is under it as a subtitle in the dictionary. See Jeff. Impatient. You, you see, we neglect who we are in Christ, and then all of a sudden there's a lot of impatience, and there's some anger, and some bitterness, and a little gossip, a little hate. There's all kinds of stuff that pops up in the lawn of your life that's not supposed to be there. I believe that was what was wrong with the children of Israel. They got real comfortable right where they were, and they didn't want to go grow. Family of God, we've got to go grow. We need to go work at it. We need to give it a try. We need to do some new things and do some hard things. Because it's easy to stay where you're at. Amen? You know, the weird thing is you get older. Er, no, sorry, I said that older. As you get older... You kind of enjoy nothing changing. It's like, there's my coffee cup. I get tweaked. I go in and, and see, my coffee cup is in the back, and Connie's coffee cup is in the front, in the bottom of this cabinet. And I open the door in their mix, and I'm like, how dare she? It's like my coffee cup is, it's weird. But as you get older, you get used to things being in the same place. And the same thing. And for me, that's a 4.30 alarm clock called a Labrador. You know, you're just like... <laughs> and your face is being washed. And, you know, it's just like, you should hate it. But somehow, it's because it happens every day, you're okay with it. Spiritually, that happens to us. Stuff that we shouldn't like happening, we let go. And then, all of a sudden, we actually like it. I like being mean. I like being mean-spirited and snippy. Because I neglected to go be filled with the Spirit and to work at it and to get rid of that stupid, rotten, sin nature that I kind of do some work, go crucify the flesh and all of its desires, didn't Paul say? You see, you see, when we think of life that way, then this starts to make some sense. Why would they not want to possess the land? Because they were real comfortable right where they were at. And it was going to take work to go take the new land. Don't let that be you. you got to work at it. And you're going to get dirty. 
You're going to bruise your knees. You're going to have some things happen to you you're not going to like. But in the end, you're going to enlarge the territory that God has for you. If you want to be better, if you want to be used more, then you got to get out. you got to go do what God calls you to do. So very true in our lives. Joshua now is going to go instruct a, a survey a party to go out and assess the land that it might be divided among the seven tribes. And I want to spend a little bit of our time tonight uh, in these next several verses before we try and read through the remaining portions of nearly two chapters. Uh, notice what it says here in verse 4. It says, pick out from among you. And I'm, I'm going to highlight a couple of things for the purpose of illustration. Notice what they're doing here. They're using their heads. In order to pick something, there has to be a distinction. Amen? If I put my hands out and I have three marbles in there and I ask you to pick one, you will have to use this thing right here for a few seconds to make a determination as to which one of those three marbles is for you the best one. you got to think. So when Joshua says, pick from among you, what he's really saying is, Hey, God has given you a brain. Use it. Check these guys out. Look at their character. Look at their gifts. Look at their skills. Look at their talents. Maybe you've got a whole survey crew in your own tribe. I don't know. Maybe you've got some guys there that are really gifted in math. Maybe you've got some people in there that, you know, they're absolutely awesome cartographers. That's a map maker, if you don't know. You've got some cartographers in your group. Maybe you've got some guys that have photographic memories and they're actually fairly good artists and they can write on their little piece of parchment, you know, a really nice kind of picture of the mountain that is the edge of that land. He says, pick from among you three men from each tribe and I will send them that they shall rise and go through the land and survey it according to their inheritance and come back to me. And notice it says survey it. They're actually going to use their heads to go out, look at the land, mark down what is different and good about it and all the problems and everything else, and bring it back. They're using their heads. I I, I need to say this to you because there, there are a lot of Christians that are on the wrong side of this whole issue. They think that when you become a Christian, you put your brain in a box, you stick it in a closet, and you become so spiritually minded here on this earth that you're no earthly good. You, you just don't think anymore. Well, brother, you know, God will just take care of it. I've had people say that to me about every manner of thing you can think of. Their jobs, their time and scheduling, their spouses, their homes, the maintenance on their home. Well, you know, I'll just... God will just have to make the paint last longer. No, God's telling you to get off of your couch, go to Home Depot, get some gallons of paint, and paint your house. It's not going to paint itself. He's saying, think about it. Use your head. And they shall divide it into seven parts, and Judah shall remain in their territory on the south, the house of Joseph over their territory in the north, and you shall therefore survey the land. Notice how many times it says this in seven parts, and bring this survey here to me that I may cast lots. So now he's going to take the thinking, and he's going to allow God to separate out what's from him and what's not from him. Do you see it? They're going to do what's right, and then they're going to pray over it. They're going to do what's right and what's reasonable, 
And then they're going to pray over it. Don't ask God to bless your unEffort. Don't ask God to bless you doing nothing. Don't ask God to bless your sitting on your hands. And don't ask God to bless you as you sit around and wait for things to decay. God's not going to do that. Very often God uses our human effort, our human gifts, our human talents, and then he says, hey, now bring those gifts to me, and let's pray over those things to see how they might be best utilized. But God has never blessed the person who just simply sits around and goes, well, God will take care of it. That's not faith. That's actually a lack of faith. And he says, but the Levites will have no part among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their inheritance. In other words, they were supposed to do just as I am supposed to do, commit myself to fasting and prayer and the study of the word of God so I might be able to to teach it. That's my primary calling in life. That's what I'm supposed to do the most of. I'm supposed to pray. I'm supposed to study. I'm supposed to teach. That's what people who are in a teaching role are supposed to do. But that doesn't mean that I get to sit on my hands all the time. I need to get busy at times and use the other skills, gifts, and talents that God's given me. I'm going to show you a little bit here because I want to try and make somehow these couple of chapters somewhat interesting for you. And so it says, In Gad and Reuben, the half-tribe of Manasseh, have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan to the east, which Moses the servant gave them. So there's the two and a half tribes that are on the other side of the Jordan River. And then the men arose and went away. And Joshua charged those who went to survey the land, saying, Go and walk, check this out, walk through the land. Do you realize what he's saying? He's not saying, Go on the Internet and find out what somebody else already did. He's not saying, Go plagiarize something and you know do whatever you think you might want to do. He's saying, You go walk through the land yourself, and you bring back a report to me. Go check it out yourself. Because when you get information for yourself, it's a whole lot better information, isn't it? When you know something that you know because you've experienced it, I can tell you where curves are in hiking trails in the high Sierras that I walked 40 years ago because I walked them myself. I can tell you where the prime fishing holes are. I can even tell you what fish I caught and what body of water because I did it myself. And I'm using this by way of illustration, by the way. You see, when you do things yourself, it locks in in three very specific ways. It locks in in your mind. In other words, you remember it that way. It locks in applicationally because you have actually done it. So there is a direct correlation between what you do with your hands. That's why we have apprenticeship programs and what you remember. And then it locks in intellectually. You have to think about it in order to do it. So it's not only stored in your mind, but it's also then translated from your hands to thoughts, and from your thoughts it becomes part of your memory. That's why when you do something, you remember it much better than if somebody tells you about doing the exact same thing. Amen? And so he says, Come back to me that I may cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. So he says, Go think about it. Go walk through it. Go do it. What he's really saying to him is think, use your brain. And when we think about a lot of Christians, you know, when they think about thinking, it's almost like it's something wrong with it. I can't even tell you how many Christians. Well, you know, I just prayed about it and God told me to just do nothing. I think that was your flesh telling you to just do nothing because it probably wasn't God. Now, he might tell you to. Cool your jets a little bit. He may tell you to slow down, 
But I've yet to get from God. Go do nothing. Sit on your hands and just wait for me to, to, you know, somehow miraculously input into your life. God very rarely does that. Can he? Yes. But does he most of the time? No. I can prove that to you, by the way. It's a thing called your paycheck. Do you get one if you don't go to work? I didn't think so, because if you do, I want to work where you work. <laughs> Wherever that is. Just go, and you don't have to do anything. You just you just come every Friday, and they just throw a check at you. Here, have one. No, you go work, and you go think, you go do. Amen? You're rewarded for that. God works very much the same way. He is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Amen? Not people who wander around, well, I hope God speaks to me sometime. When you think about your brain, I, I just want to give you a little... A little bit of a science lesson here, but your brain, generally, if you're an adult, is about 3.1 pounds or so, and it has in that little lump of matter about a quadrillion. For those of you who like numbers, that's a 100 billion neurons that are inside of your brain, like these little guys in the picture there. Those things are so small that if you stacked up all of those neurons together, put them end to end, they're only about 187 miles long. So... Figure that there's 100 billion of them, and you put them together, and they're 187. You can imagine how small they are. They're fairly tiny. They have a couple of little uh, things on them called dendrites and axons, and basically one receives information, one puts out information, and where they connect are called synapses, and that's a chemical process that happens in your brain that transmits energy, and it transmits information. So in doing that, that's how you think. That's a very simple way of helping you understand you actually have a chemical computer up here on top of your head. Now, for those of you that, you know, like such things, when you think about that, a nerve cell, one of these little tiny nerve cells, when you think about what it actually does, it self-diagnoses problems, it self-replicates, it's able to reroute information virtually instantaneous, it can handle hundreds of billions of calculations a second. Okay, So when you look at your brain, it kind of doesn't make much sense that God put that much tech into your head and then wants you to sit on it. So when you think about your mind, if you were to count all of those billions of cells, if you could count one of them per second, it would take you about 3,171 years just to count the number of cells that you have in your brain. And that's probably not saying too much for some of you, but in this regard, try saying 1,104,362 in one second. I'm pretty sure you cannot do that. And so if you could, it would take you over 3,000 years just to count your own brain cells. Give you another little tidbit. How much computing can your brain do? You have 20 million billion calculations available to you per second in your little tiny cranium. Okay? 20 million billion of them per second is what your brain is capable of doing. Now, to, to put that into to, to a, a way that you can imagine, a, imagine it, if, if you start to break that down, it does actually come into storage capacity. So as you take all of those firings of your little brain cells up there, and you figure out how many of those brain cells you actually have, 
How much storage capacity does your little tiny brain have? Your brain has 99,000 plus gigabits of storage capacity. Now, to give you an idea of how much that is, most of you, if you have a really new computer hard drive, you might have a terabyte hard drive. Okay? The entire Library of Congress, the whole thing, Every letter, every page, every illustration could be stored in your brain five times over. I don't think God would have given you that type of computing power to have you sit around and go, I don't know. I'm not sure. I can't do anything. The dumbest and densest among us has more supercomputing power available in your head than the NSA. Get that? You have more supercomputing power than any computer they've got inside your head. So when you think about all of the things that God allows us to be engaged in, and to think that that happened over by random chance and adaptation over billions of years, is kind of stupid, isn't it? God gave you that brain for a reason. It's not just to sit up there and take up space. It's for you to use and think and reason and ponder. It's why you enjoy these. Rick was pointing out the moonrise tonight. Did you see the moonrise tonight? How can you not go out there and go, God, you're good? How can you not go outside and smell fresh air and go, man, I smell pine needles and not smog? You know, how, can, how can you look into the eyes of a child and not be enamored? How, how can you think on your life that God would pour his spirit into you and not go, man, I want to, whatever you want from me, God, must be better than what I want for myself, because look what you can do. In three pounds and about two ounces of gray matter, you could store the Library of Congress five times over. I think God wants you to use this thing up here and pray. Talk to him. A lot of R&D went into your cranial capacity, your cranial PC. So I think that's why God's saying, look, guys, go out and serve you the land. You know, another thing that happens when you get busy doing what God wants you to do, you don't have time or so much time to mess up. You're busy about your father's business. Pick up with me now, if you would, in verse 9. We finally get to the last divisions of the land. The survey party come back. And so the men went and passed through the land and wrote the survey. They did what God asked them to do through Joshua. They actually went out. They walked the land. They surveyed the land. They marked down the mountain peaks, the valleys, the little wadis, the, the rock piles, the mountains. They marked all those things down. And they brought it back so Joshua could then pray over it. It wasn't some obscure, stupid, well, you know, just go that way. Go over there. Just walk towards the sun, and when you get burnt out of walking, just camp it. No, he says, let's go see what's out there, and then we'll pray over what's out there, and then we'll divide the land. And so the men, when men, the men, the when, the, the women meant to go, I don't know. The men went to... Passed through the land and wrote a survey in the book in seven parts. 
by the cities. And so he, he says, look, they did exactly what they were asked to do. Didn't leave anything out. They came to Joshua at the camp in Shiloh. And then Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua divided the land to the children of Israel according to their divisions. And so you see, they had faith. They cast lots. They had works. They did the survey. And those things working together, their brain with their Bibles, in essence, made blessings. Amen? You go out and do what you can do. Pray over it. Commit the results to God. Amen? Now, the boundaries for the tribe of Benjamin are set first. And now we're going to do some reading. And now the lot of the tribe of the children of Benjamin came up according to their families. The territory of Lot came out between the children of Judah and the children of Joseph. And I'm going to give you a map at the end so you can kind of see where all this ends up. The border on the north side began at the Jordan. And the border went up to the side of Jericho on the north. So everything you can kind of orient to the Jordan River. That's the easiest way to look at the, the land of Israel. There's several things that you can look at. You'll see here the Dead Sea is mentioned, the Salt Sea is mentioned, the Sea of Galilee, Shenareth is in the north, which is the Sea of Galilee, the Mediterranean Sea or the Great Sea, which would be in the west, the Jordan River. Those are things that everybody could find rather easily. In a day's walk, you would bump into something that you would notice that way. And so up through the mountains westward, they ended at the wilderness of Beth-Avon. And so there are several mountain ranges in the, in the land of Israel. Uh, there's one that divides the western side of the Jordan River Valley from the Salt Sea. There's one in Jordan, which is on the opposite side of that same valley. There's a mountain range in the north, which is where Mount Hermon is. It descends all the way down to a valley, which we call Megiddo, which divides from there to Mount Carmel. And from Mount Carmel, that extends all the way down uh, into the foothills just to the north of Jerusalem. So the, these areas are very easily then looked at on a map. You can go, ah, that's the mountain range in the north, that's the mountain range in the west, this is the Jordan, there's the Sea of Galilee, and here's the Salt Sea. And so it went over from the border there towards Luz, and from Luz, which is Bethel, by the way, so that's down in the Jordan River Valley, uh, southward, and the border descended to Arath Adar, near the hills that lie to the south of lower, lower Beth Haran. And so they're going to give geographic locations for all of these things so that people would look at the land, and much like when, when I teach orienteering, when, if we do a wilderness training program, the first thing I'm going to tell you is nobody's bringing their GPS, and here's why. GPSs don't work when there's no batteries in them, when you have heavy cloud cover and they cannot pick up a satellite, they don't work. So what we like to do, those of us who teach such things, is to teach you how to actually use a map and a compass because they always work. They work in the dark. They, they work when there's cloud cover. They work when you're stupid. Uh, they work all the time. But you have to know how to orient a map in order for it to do you a bit of good. And the way you orient a map is exactly how these things are being described by looking at landmarks, knowing their position relative to north, south, east, and west, which is fairly easy to do, especially in this hemisphere. The sun rises in the east. It sets in the west. So if you're standing looking east, which way is north? It'll be to your left hand. It's real easy. West is that way. So you, you can do those things. And so they did that this way. They could say, okay, here's that river, here's that mountain, it goes over to there to the south. Notice how they use the general directions here, north, south, east, and west. And so when you did that, then you could go, oh, there's Beth Haran, there's the river Jabok, there's the Salt Sea, it goes from there to there to there to there. Made it very simple for them. And they could repeat those things to successive generations, and they didn't need technology. 
Now, having said that, GPSs are wonderful things. They're excruciatingly accurate. But they also are no substitute for you knowing where you're at. And I can tell you that because I've seen a lot of people who have gotten lost with a GPS. Because, I forgot to mark a waypoint. I don't know where I am. When they're looking at the mountain, it's like, that's the mountain I started by, right over there. Okay? So the border extended around the west side to the south. So you're going from the west down to the south. So it's really easy to see which direction this is. The hill that lies before Beth Haran southward ended at Kirjath Baal, uh, which is also Kirjath Jerim, the city of the children of Judah, which is to the west side. And so he's going to intermix in each of these descriptions rivers, mountains, valleys, directions, and prominent cities. If I give you those things, you can find your way anywhere in the world. If I give you major geographic points of interest, if I give you major tributaries of river, if I give you the directions that they flow, you can find your way almost anywhere in the world. One of the things that we teach in in orienteering for mountain rescue, those types of things, we actually take people blindfolded, drop them off in the middle of nowhere, and make them find their way out. And it's actually quite easy to do if you have a sense of direction and if you have some of those common landmarks and you know where you generally are. You don't have to know which canyon you're in. You can find which canyon you're in. And so he goes on to say, then the border went south down to the end of the mountain that lies before the valley of Sun Hinnom, which is the valley of Rephaim, which is on the south side of Jerusalem, descended in the valley of Hinnom to the side of the Jebusite city on the south and descended to Enrogel. And then went from the north and went out to En Shemesh and towards Gelagloth and there towards the ascent of Adumim and descended then to Bohan to the son of Reuben. And so he's beginning to intermix again the tribe. So, hey, if you ran into a Reubenite, you know where you're at in relationship to that river and that town. And the border passed along on the north side of Beth Hagloth. And then the border ended at the Bay of the Salt Sea. And so, again, you can see how they picked up all of the major points of interest. Rivers, tributaries, seas, mountains, cities, villages, and so on. The Jordan was its border on the east side. And this was the inheritance of the children of Benjamin, according to its boundaries. And all around, according to their families, now the cities of the tribe. And so he goes through now and names all of these cities, which, again, are unimportant to us. I'm not going to read them all to you. Uh, if you care to read them, you can. There's a, there, Oprah, this is where she got her name, by the way. It's right there in verse 23. Uh, Oprah is mentioned there. Uh, also, you have Gibeon and Mitzpah. There are several uh, places which we've already studied. Uh, but the bottom line is, is these are all cities. Some of them still can be found today archaeologically. Some of them have not and cannot. Uh, they've likely been lost in the sea of sand that's out there in the middle of the Jordan River Valley, and the cities with their villages. And this is the inheritance of the children of Benjamin according to their families. And now we move on to chapter 19. And so here in chapter 19, it's very much more of the same. The second lot came out for Simeon, for the tribe of the children of Simeon according to their families. For their inheritance was within the inheritance of the children of Judah. And so now notice what this is saying. This is actually a a group that's given an inheritance with inside of Judah, which is the largest of all of the land divisions. Judah was the largest south division. And so inside of that, uh, there was a specific allotment of land for Simeon. For they had their inheritance at Beersheba, uh, which is still in existence today, that very city. Moldalah, Hazor, Shalal, and so all of these cities, 13 cities in their villages, and then to Ain, Ramon, Ether, 
and Ashan, four cities in their villages. And all the villages that were around in these cities, as far as Balath Be'er and Ramath to the south. And this was the inheritance of the tribe of Simeon, according to their families. And the inheritance of the children of Simeon was included in the share of the children of Judah. And so it's inside of Judah. And the share of the children of Judah was not too much for them. And therefore, the children of Simeon had their inheritance within the inheritance of that people. So Judah had a little bit too much land, so give some of it to Simeon. It's a righteous thing to do. And now the boundaries of the cities of the tribe of Zebulon. And the third lot came out for the children of Zebulon, according to their land. And remember how they found out this land. They sent out a survey party. Uh, likely took weeks and or months to go out and survey the land. Came back, said, here's a river in this area. Because remember, they needed water supply. They needed some type of a roadway to get from place to place. They needed arable land that could be farmed. And they needed places that they could then raise livestock and those types of things. So they were very careful about making sure that each tribe got an allotment of land that allowed them to do well. This wasn't punishment. This was the land of blessing. This was their inheritance. This was like, here, we want you to be blessed. God wants you to be blessed, so here's all the things you need to be blessed. The picture of this blessing is really what we have when we pick up the word of God. If you want to know how to be blessed, you inherit what's in here. Okay? You, you as a New Testament believer can pick up your Bible and say, look, I, I'd like to have the, the gift of patience. Uh, that's one I need. Gift of self-control, goodness, mercy, gentleness. I'd like to have the gift of love. Who wouldn't want that one? Amen? So you, you take those things, and we're to get those things, and we could all have those things. And so there was a consistent all things that were necessary for each tribe. There was a centrally located basket of goodies, if you will, called water and roads and cities and arable farmland. It's much like our inheritance in Christ. We all have certain things that each one of us gets. We're all children of God by grace. Amen? We all have our measure of faith. Amen? We all have the same love of God in us. Amen? You see, we all have the same general things that we're given, but how those things are expressed are unique to you and unique to me, unique to us as a church, and unique to other churches as churches, and unique in totality, really, to the entire body of Christ. But they're all the same in that none of us will ever get to heaven and go, man, I got gypped on grace. You know, I just, I, I don't know what God was thinking. He didn't give me any patience. And it won't be because you didn't get any patience, it's because you did not go and possess, and that's my problem. A lot of times I'm too worried about, you know, the drivers or whatever to have patience with them. So... Make sure to realize that God's given it to you. Go possess it. He didn't stiff you on the gifts, okay? He gave you the gift. It's a matter of whether you're going to go possess that gift or not in your own land. The third lot came out to the children of Zebulon. According to their families, the border of their inheritance was as far as Sarid, uh, there in the border that went towards Maralah, uh, down to Dabasheth. And there it extended along the brook that's known as Joachim, which is actually the brook Jabok, which is over in modern-day Jordan. And from Sarid, it went eastward towards the sunrise. Uh, notice how what I said. Where does the sun rise? They did the same thing. They're in the northern hemisphere, so they could do the same thing. Go towards the sunrise. The brook will be on this side of that mountain and made it super easy for them to figure out, okay, this is your land, this is your land. This is where you're supposed to be, this is where you're supposed to be. Why do you think God gives us boundaries? He wants to bless us. He's giving them the inheritance. He gives you boundaries because he wants to bless you. So he will tell you that's somebody else's house. That's somebody else's 
husband or wife. That's somebody else's money. That's somebody else's stuff. That's their inheritance. That's why when you look at the Ten Commandments, half of them are towards God and half of them are towards fellow man. Amen? He gives us boundaries. He says, look, you can only go this far. This is for you. Some people get a little upset because maybe they don't have what somebody else has. God gives us boundaries. Boundaries are God-given. And if you don't understand that as soon as you have children, you'll understand that we need boundaries. Amen? Children without boundaries are also known as an A-bomb. Chisloth and Tabor went out to Dabareth, passing Japha, and there it passed along the east of Gath-Hefir, uh, towards Eth-Kazin, towards the border of Ramon, and towards Nea. And there the border it went around on the north side of Hanathan, and to the valley of Injaveth, and there it included Katath and these other cities, and this was the inheritance of Zebulon, according to their families, these cities and their villages. And then the boundaries of the tribe of Ishakar, same thing. Fourth lot came out to Ishakar. Their territory went to Jezreel. And you'll see some of these names, you know where they are. I could probably hand you a map, go, where's the valley of Jezreel? Most of you would point the dead center of Israel. That's roughly where it is. It's the valley that one day will also have the Battle of Armageddon in it. And so Jezreel Valley uh, included Shesoloth and Shanum. And it goes on again to describe these things. Now notice it says it reached towards Tabor. Mount Tabor, very visible today. It's prominent in the land of Israel. You can go today, ask somebody, where's Mount Tabor? There's signs, Mount Tabor, that way. Uh, you'll, you'll find it very, very easily. Shezmiah, Beth Shemesh, that city actually still is in existence today. In it at the border of the Jordan, the 16 cities, their villages. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Ishakar according to their families, their cities, and their villages. And then the tribe of Asher, and the fifth lot came out to the tribe of the children of Asher, according to their families, and their territory, which included Helkath, Hali. And notice it now goes on and includes Mount Carmel on the west side. That's why I used all these things at the beginning. So as you wander around Israel, real easy to find Mount Carmel, real easy to find Mount Tabor, real easy to find the Jordan River, real easy to find the Valley of Jezreel. It's not a problem. You can find those things today. If I were to give you these descriptions, you could take this to Israel today, and there are enough of these places still in existence that you could roughly map out exactly what the lands were. You, you would get reasonably close. Oh, well, there's Mount Carmel over there. There's the Great Sea over there. There's the Jordan River over there. And so it goes on to name these another brook, which we would call a creek, which is in Libath. And there it turned towards the sunrise. Again, notice the direction. Sunrise, which would be east. Seems it's real easy to get these things. Reach towards Zebulun to the valley of Jephthah, uh, Jephthah-el, towards the, the, the beyond of Beth-Emach and Na'il, passing Kabul, which was on the left. And there it included uh, Ebron and Rehoth and Haman, and again goes on. Now notice, it says, turns towards the body of Ramah and towards the fortified city of Tyre. So where are we? We're up in the north, amen? Not too tough to tell. Tyre and Sidon were in the north. They're in modern-day Lebanon. Uh, again, you would know, to know where those areas are. It included 22 cities along with their villages. It was the inheritance of the tribe of Asher, according to their families, these cities and their villages. And then Naphtali comes next. The sixth lot comes out. Uh, and you'll notice there, same exact thing. You can go through it. And again, it mentions the sunrise. Uh, 
uh, tells you again some of these cities, cities Migdal El, which is still there, Iran, Hazor is still there, uh, In Hazor is still there, Kadesh is still there. Um, these are the tribes, uh, the inheritance of the children of the tr- our tribe of Naphtali, according to their families, their cities, and their villages, and again, by the Jordan toward the sunrise. So real easy. By the Jordan River, Jordan River flows north-south. You're at the Jordan River. You're looking towards the sunrise. The seventh lot came out for the tribe of the children of Dan, and according to their families, and their territory of their inheritance was at Zorah, Eshtal, Shemesh. You'll notice some repeated cities. That's because as they defined these lands, Shemesh would be on the border. So it was on one side of one tribe, the opposite side of the other tribe, same way that we would describe it. It's on the south side of San Bernardino, Colton. It's on the south side of San Bernardino. It's on the north side of Moreno Valley. Amen? Exactly the same thing. It's just telling you in location so that you'd know which direction you're traveling. So that when you looked at the possession of the land, uh, you'd get it right. Elan, Temna, Ekron. Uh, all of these cities, uh, Major Khan and, and Rakhan, this is like Rakhan, you know, really, Rakhan. You thought that was a new phrase, but no, it's right here. It's a city that was given to the tribe of Dan. We're not talking about Dan Conger. This is a different Dan. The border of the children of Dan went beyond these because the children of Dan went up to fight against Leshem, and they took it. So here you have an interesting thing. The children of Dan were like, you know, hey, here's our land. Looks like there's some other good land over there. There's some Canaanites left in it. We're going to go take some more of that land. And so they did. And they, they struck it with the edge of the sword and took possession of it and dwelt in it. They called Leshem Dan after Dan and their father, and this was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Dan, according to their families, these cities and their villages. And then finally, as you might think from a great leader, uh, who does he think of last? Uh, Himself. Uh, He he didn't put himself first. He didn't go out and say, hey, go spy out the land. Tell me where the juicy parts are. If you find a place that's really good, tell me where it's at, because I'm your leader, and I want that. He actually took the leftovers. He took the very last chunk of land. And I'm sure God blessed him because he's casting lots before the Lord, which is a way of discerning the will of the Lord. It's how we, as I told you, would use the Holy Spirit in our lives. He's praying over it. The Holy Spirit's guiding. He's using the word of God. God's speaking to him. So I'm sure God was good to him, but he didn't take care of himself first. Beware of leaders who take care of themselves first. It's a real dangerous situation. Uh, And if you don't believe that, I'll I'll give you one example, and you can see what's going on. Mars Hill Church, a leader that took care of himself first to the tune of a salary of about $600,000 a year. Multi-million dollar mansion in a gated community, those types of things. And it's come back to haunt them, and it's destroyed the church, and those churches are closing their doors. Missionaries that didn't get funded because the funds went to pay for the house. Not good. And I'm not calling them out to make a mockery of them. I'm saying that's exactly what happens. And so we need to beware. Workmen are supposed to be worthy of their hire. And those, who us, those of us who labor in the word are worthy of double honor. I'm not dismissing that pastors need to be paid. Otherwise, we've got to go get a job and we don't do what we're supposed to do really well. I know because I did that for a long time. It can be very difficult. But truly, those who are being used of the Lord need to look out for themselves last. And you say, what can I do to bless the body first and then see that those needs are met in a way that are honoring to the Lord? 
And when they made an end to the dividing of the land, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. As an inheritance according to their borders, the children of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. I want you to notice what happened. Did Joshua give himself an inheritance? He did not. Those who were with him gave him an inheritance. Again, that's a picture of how it's supposed to work. Scripture actually says, let another person or another man sing your praises. Let someone else uh, lift up your name before the Lord. That's what's supposed to happen. If, if we who labor in the word do what we're supposed to do, God will take care of us. And he'll put it on everyone else's heart to do what they're supposed to do so that that can happen. And that's exactly what happens here. The children of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. According to the word of the Lord, they gave him the city which he asked for. In other words, doesn't God desire to give you the, doesn't he delight to give you the desire of your heart? But notice whose heart he put it on. Not on Joshua's to take it, but on the people to give it. Isn't that awesome? That's the way it's supposed to work. It's not, well, you know, I can do it, so I'll take it. It's, I'm going to pray, made known what the desire was, and God fulfilled it. God did it. He impressed upon the hearts of the people. And there it was in Timnah Sarah in the mountains. By the way, he was a mountain person. Joshua was a mountain person. The mountains of Ephraim. And he built a city and dwelt in it. And these were the inheritance which Eleazar the priest, Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the father of the tribes of the children of Israel, divided as an inheritance by lot in Shiloh before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Notice where they did it. They did it in God's house. They did it in God's house. And they did it God's way. They did it by the Spirit of the Lord. As the Lord worked in their lives, they then divided those things up and said, Hey, go possess it. This is what God wants for you. If you really want to have the best in your life, you want what God wants for you. You don't want what you want for you. That can be a really bad thing. As you look at this map, and I know it's really, really, really hard to see, you'll see that in all of these land divisions, there's kind of a belt through the middle. If you remember, the two most warring tribes were actually stuck right in the middle of the children of Israel. Makes sense, doesn't it? You don't want all the, the basically the most strong tribes all the way up in the north there's trouble in the south take them too long to get there so god uses those thinking processes that we we would probably implement to this day and so when god does these things what he's really saying is he, he says look these things are divided as inheritance by at the door of the tent of the tabernacle meeting and so they made an end to dividing of the country he said look if god's in it and god's done it that settles it it's over it's taken care of Let's move on. And that's kind of how God works in our lives as well. He, he, he works by us using this gray matter that's up here inside of your skull. He allows us to get engaged in the thinking process. We bring those thoughts before the Lord. We pray over those things. We do it in, in a godly way in God's house. It's a good way to grab your friends that know the Lord and ask them to pray over something in your life that you've thought through and done what you can. You want, you want to do what you can do. You don't, you don't want to, as Proverbs 12 says, lazy man doesn't roast what he took hunting. Uh, but a diligent man's precious possession, you know, you, you, you see the difference. A lazy person says, well, I don't, you know, I don't know, I'll just let it go to waste. You know how it is after, I don't even want to say it, you know, after the fires when you came home to your fridge? Not a good thing, huh? Bad thing. Didn't you kind of moan when you opened the fridge door, not just from the smell, but because of, all of that money wasted, 
perfectly good food. You've got to throw it out because it's all spoiled. That's what lazy people do. Lazy people sit around, well, you know, I'm going to have to go down to the garage and get a piece of meat. I mean, the stove is up here in the kitchen. I mean, i got to walk all the way down there, and I, you know, I'm just going to sit here, and I'm going to have Halloween candy. <laughs> and before you know it, you can't even see the TV. Your view is obscured. No, it tastes really good for a while, doing what you want. And then all of a sudden you realize you don't have what God wants. You have what you want. We, we need to interject our thinking, of course, with, with faith. And we need to fight the good fight. And we need to be generous with what God's given us and show other people how to live that life that, that we enjoy as well. That's one of the reasons that this book presents Joshua as such a beautiful picture of Jesus. He was other-centered, thinks of himself last. He's always got his face before the Lord. He's willing to do the hard things. He's willing to work hard. But he's always committing whatever he does to the Lord. I'd like to be like Joshua someday. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time tonight and your word. And God, as we've skipped over some of these place names and cities and families, God, it's not our intent to diminish your word at all. But they are difficult for us to put on a on a map even today. They're very important to you or you wouldn't have recorded them. So we ask that you would just simply help us to understand these things as they pertain to us today. Pray that you would bless us, that you'd watch over us, that you'd keep us, instruct us, Lord. Help us to go possess what it is that you have for us, God. Help us to be bold with that. and Help us to not be afraid of a giant or two or a mountain that needs to be climbed or perhaps a giant uh, that needs slaying, God. Maybe there's something in our life that we, we just need to take it out or get rid of it. Pray that you bless us with the strength to be overcomers. Lord, help us to, to walk with you all of the days of our lives. Help us to trust you and to walk by faith. Help us to be generous. We love you. We praise you. We bless you. We ask all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.